Ten years ago this week, a hurricane named Sandy tracked up the east coast of the U.S. Sandy experienced some complex changes as it turned toward the northwest and approached the eastern seaboard of the mid-Atlantic states. It lost its warm core and tropical characteristics, grew tremendously in geographic size, and slightly weakened, making landfall in southern New Jersey as a post-tropical cyclone with maximum sustained winds of 70 knots, or 81 miles per hour. Because it lost its tropical characteristics before making landfall, we usually refer to the storm as Super Storm Sandy when talking about its landfall and impacts on land in the mid-Atlantic and northeastern states instead of Hurricane Sandy. Sandy's huge wind field enabled the storm to generate a record-breaking storm surge in the region. Water levels in both New York and New Jersey reached as high as 9 feet above ground level, sometimes accompanied by large destructive waves, according to the official National Hurricane Center report. The water level at the battery on the southern tip of Manhattan reached around 14 feet above mean lower low water, or more than 4 feet higher than the previous record flood level, set in December 1992. This catastrophic storm inflicted widespread damage along the coastline, particularly in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. The National Hurricane Center report states the storm was responsible for 147 direct deaths, including 72 in the mid-Atlantic and northeastern U.S. states. Preliminary monetary damages reached at least $50 billion, according to the NHC report, making it the second most costly tropical or post-tropical cyclone at the time. This is a good time to look back at Sandy to hear stories both about its destruction and recovery efforts to help impacted communities rebound. Last autumn, I conducted several interviews on the ground in communities impacted by Sandy along the southern shore of Long Island, New York. We've compiled compiled these interviews into this podcast. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal, host of the GeoTrek podcast. In this episode, we're going to look back at Superstorm Standy and really have a lot of lessons learned and talk to some witnesses that were right there on the ground and uh, really saw the impacts of the storm the day of the event and also helped with the recovery. I recorded these interviews in the early days of the podcast when I did not have as much audio recording equipment. They were recorded videos on my iPhone and I had to keep each segment relatively short. So there's a bit of choppiness in some of the transitions, but we've done our best to kind of smooth those over. The good news, however, is that we have a lot of great video clips to share with our listeners on GeoTrek social media channels, which are uploaded to Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Before we get into these conversations, a bit about the podcast. GeoTrack investigates the impact of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient. Hey, before we get into this episode, a quick favor to ask our listeners, we'd really appreciate it if you take just a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark progress, which enables us to make more professional partnerships moving forward and ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. As usual, GeoTrek loves to get on the ground and take you, our listeners, on a journey to another place in time. So let's get on the ground together on the southern shore of Long Island, New York. It's a cool gray day with a raw wind blowing off the ocean. Listen closely and you'll pick up cues to our location in such podcasts. For example, you can hear a plane passing overhead during our Breezy Point segment of this podcast. That gives you a little taste of the energy of this place, where planes approaching New York City's JFK airport sometimes fly overhead. 
Our first guest this week is Jim Cashin, a firefighter who shared Superstorm Sandy stories with me while we walked around Breezy Point, a community in the Rockaways region of Queens County, New York. This area is a beach community on Long Island in the southeastern region of the greater New York City metro area. I found the area to be fairly densely populated for a beach community, with single-family residential homes pressed closely together and separated by walkways. The patriotic and civic-minded spirit of this community was evident from the many American flags on people's homes, as well as signs that showed support for police and firefighters. I even saw signs commemorating 9-11. And then you can see Manhattan here, and then we have the Atlantic Ocean, uh, about a mile uh, south of here, and between the, uh, the flood and the so storm surge, the bay and the ocean basically met, and it was just uh, such heavy storm water coming. Jim, this is Jamaica Bay. This is Jamaica Bay. There's Jamaica and York, Bay, and you can see New York. Yeah, New York Harbor is, is that entrance, and it's Coney Island. I don't know if you can make out that little parachute jump, that little structure yep. with its flat top. That's, there's that's Coney, Coney Island out there, and then there's Manhattan down there. And then Manhattan's further back. This is all yeah. for the shoreline of Brooklyn. Oh, he, your dad built a house here in 52. Yes. Was he, like, were they coming out from the city or from yes, somewhere from else? Brooklyn. So I got you. It was going to be our summer place. And, um... We, he built it, uh, you know, him and a couple of firemen helped out and uh, they, they had a summer bungalow for uh, seven of us in, the, in the bunk beds and back to the beach every, every day and uh, it, was, it was just uh, a nice place to be. Wow, so um, it sounds like you have a history in your family with like people working in fire and rescue and things like that, right? Yes, uh, uh, my, my dad and my uh, two brothers are um, on fire department uh, I'm the last one that's still active. Yeah. Um, everybody else is retired. Yeah, thank you for your service. It, 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 you. It's such a huge, uh, huge thing for communities to have people like you serving. You know? Yeah, that's, uh, there's, and there's a lot of uh, cops and firemen um, that live in this community. So um, it's a real work ethic uh, type of community that, uh, that does, they rely on each other. Yeah. Well, and I'm wondering if communities like this just are going to recover faster because of that. You know what I mean? Yes. People kind of uh, from the ground up and a lot of, like you said, blue collar workers, a lot of right. uh, police and fire and, and very civic minded people, right? Yes. Hands on. They, they want to help. And um, neighbor helping neighbor is, has always been, you know, the backbone of this community, I think. We're down in, in, in Rockaway here for, uh, I, I grew up down here. So uh, I kind of seen what uh, what can happen over the you know course of some bad storms. Yeah, so when Sandy come, do you do you think anyone had an expectation of what it would be or? Well, um, you know, we had the uh, hurricane uh, Irene, I believe, which was a few months uh, before Sandy. And it only amounted to uh, a small amount of uh, high winds and some flooding, but uh, nothing major. Nobody evacuated, and uh, I think maybe got complacent when uh, they heard about Sandy. Um, didn't think it would be that bad. Um, Almost was, like we, we did okay in Irene, we'll exactly, be okay in that's, Sandy. That's a lot of people thought like, like that. And, uh, un you know, unfortunately, people just uh, uh, underestimated it. I, le I left when the evacuation order came, and um, I went down. My house is a little few miles back, and um, I went down that morning to the uh, ocean just to see what was uh, what the surf looked like because I heard the weather reports it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be bad and um, sure enough the uh, the surf was already up to the 
boardwalk, which runs uh, parallel to the shoreline, and it was up high coming over. And um, I said, you know what, the, the kids and uh, my wife, we'll pack it up and uh, close down as best we could and uh, went into Brooklyn to higher ground. And the storm really hit, was it a Monday night? Is that right? Yes, it was. So and did you leave on Sunday then? Uh, no, I left uh, in the morning of... Uh, uh, that Monday morning. Okay, I got you. Yeah. So you got out a good maybe 10, yeah. 12 hours before. Yeah, really because I kind of had seen what uh, the ocean was looking like. Uh, I see. Prior. And you're like, this isn't playing around. This isn't good. <laughs> so uh, we already had a little bit of water coming up, uh, groundwater. And um, I said, you know what? I think we should yeah. make a move. Jim's perspective that Hurricane Irene's minimal damage in the area led to complacency when Superstorm Sandy came mirrors what we see in other coastal communities that weather one or more coastal storms without major problems, then are threatened by a much more severe storm and inflict a lot of damages or even loss of life. Irene struck the year before Sandy in August of 2011. Sandy struck in October of 2012. Jim also mentioned that his family evacuated on Monday morning, around 10 to 12 hours before the worst conditions of Superstorm Sandy struck. After looking at the water conditions for himself, he decided he wanted to get his family out of harm's way. This brings up an interesting point that sometimes we can evacuate as late as the morning of a big storm. Although experts often recommend an earlier evacuation, as long as you keep situational awareness and are familiar with your evacuation route, leaving the morning of a big storm can still be a good option in many cases. In the aftermath of Hurricane Ian in southwest Florida, many experts were saying that people still could have gotten out of harm's way in the storm surge zone the morning that Ian struck, around 7 to 10 hours before landfall. If your community or evacuation route are not yet flooded, you often still have time to get out. My conversation with Jim continued as he described that the densely constructed homes help fire spread during Superstorm Sandy. We also observed flood adaptations like elevated air conditioner units, raised foundations, and the use of flood vents. The houses are so close together. So a lot of the fires were here. Oh, and, and the fact that the houses were so close together, that, did that help them spread pretty quickly? Yes, without a doubt. That's what happened down here. And you know, This whole section here is um, it's called the wedge area because it's constructed with um, uh, larger um, groups of homes going into smaller groups of homes. They call this the wedge area, and being that it was so close together, it um, the majority of the fires were in this in this area here. You and can see going down the walk how close they are. Yeah, they're very close together, and that just and with the winds of Sandy, those those embers are just going from one house to the next, right? Yes, for sure. Yeah. And they were, you know, small bungalows, wood frame, so it did um, spread pretty quickly with the being wood construction. So here's the, it looks like, is that an air conditioner unit that's up high, right? So the, Yeah, everybody's been doing that now. Getting, getting it up above potential flood water. Yes. You probably would not have seen that before Hurricane Sandy, No, right? and you can see the foundation is up a little higher. And the openings here, a lot of these new construction, you have to have these um, the flood, vents. flood vents. So in case of another flood, it just comes in and goes out the same way. Instead of taking down the house, it exactly. just lets the water kind of right. flow through. Right, that's a new, uh, a new part of the construction. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing. Some people are saying, you know, I really want to live in that community because you might go 50, 60, 100 years until you have another big event. So there's a lot of great family fun you can have down by the beach in that amount of time, right? Yes. But at some point, people are saying, well, we, we still want to live there. We just have to maybe adapt. Right. Go this way. Um, 
yeah, people, um, they, you know, they have uh, roots in the community. You know, people, uh, my, you know, my son's going to be getting on a fire department soon, so we're not leaving. You know, we want to be around our family. I think a lot of people feel the same way. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it seems like a great community and a great place to be. Jim explains that most of the elevated homes in the area were raised after Sandy. He also clarified that Sandy's floodwater was highly contaminated with sewage from cesspools that the floodwater lifted up. Our listeners should keep in mind, if you decide to stay for a large flood in, for a large flood event in your community, not only are you fighting to stay above the floodwater and not drown, the water you're wading or swimming in may be highly contaminated. Were there some houses that were raised before Sandy, or was it not pretty really. much all afterwards? No, pretty much after. People, um, you know, they, they saw what happened, and um, they were uh, just that they needed to do something if they wanted to sell, uh, stay. Some people sold and didn't didn't come back and uh, sold the house. They didn't want to be part of it again if something like that happened. Yeah, yeah. It's just so devastating. Yeah. Well, know. and it's not just flood water. It's, there's mud and pollution and yes. chemicals, and it's, oh. it's just such a mess, yes. right? Yes, and this, um, you know, this community is, uh, they don't have a, 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 sep they have a uh, septic system. So everybody has uh, cesspools yeah. in and around their property. And uh, what really happened was that, that storm surge and the heavy water sometimes lifted up some of those uh, cesspools. And so you had all that mix. Yeah, of everything. All, so all that contamination, yes. right? Another adaptation Jim showed me were concrete walls that were built around many houses in the community. Some people installed a platform that looked like a large patio on top of these walls and then elevated their homes on top of that. Others kept their home at the same ground level with hopes that the new concrete wall would keep the floodwater out. Devastating. So, uh, this, so, so how high did the water come in and did it just wash a lot of houses um, away? It washed a lot of houses away fur further down here. And um, a lot of people put in these uh, concrete walls um, on both sides. My neighbor, um, his house was really uh, devastating. And uh, he was able to, uh, through um, FEMA, and uh, build it back, um, able to raise it. And he just finished actually working on it about a year ago and uh, just got built, built everything up. I see. And so these walls, are, are these walls pretty new, like seeing walls like this? Fairly, yeah, fairly. After seeing these adaptations in the densely populated area, Jim took me to a location farther out, right along the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. He explained how the U.S. Army Corps built a jetty out here in the 1930s to help capture sand and build up the coastline. Really, in the Rockaways, very close to the Atlantic Ocean, and Jim was explaining that the sand you see here was really captured by a U.S. Army Corps jetty that was put in in the 1930s to capture the sand in this area, huh? Yeah, that's uh, all a product of that jetty, which is about a mile and a half to, to the uh, west, and it... Um, it captured all the sand, and these dunes were, were, were helped stem some of the, uh, the the water. And it's about a quarter of a mile walk now from from the houses to to the ocean, where it used to be uh, maybe 500 yards to the uh, to the ocean. So they really uh, knew early on that uh, they needed to do something. So they studied the currents and thought, if we put a jetty in a certain place, it'll capture the sand here. And so this is actually built land in this part of the Rockways. Yeah, the um, they built it where the bay meets the ocean. So you got Jamaica Bay uh, to the west and then the Atlantic Ocean coming in and that New York uh, 
channel into, into the uh, New York Harbor, like the Jamaica Bay meets that, and it's a swirling area of, uh, of surf and water that um, it would be the perfect spot to put a, a jetty to, to stop that uh, water from coming in and, and taking all the sand out, which it was doing wow. over the years. So it really uh, built up a lot of the sand and the, and the coastal area here. This is in the Rockaways, very close to the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, right behind that dune is the Atlantic. So it uh, really built out this area. And then you can see there's a lot of houses that have been built here as well. Yeah, yeah thank you for that perspective. Sure. It was designed that um, they put these dunes in to, to help uh, stem another storm surge. So the water from Sandy is really coming from the Atlantic, right? Yes. So it was coming this way. Oh, the storm surge was, uh, I wouldn't call it a tidal wave, but it was a surge that just um, unimpeded and came right through. Pre-Sandy, were the dunes this high or have they no, been built up? No, not at all. They, were, they slowly were built up over over the years. So when Sandy came, you said you looked at the water. Did you come down here? No, I was at my house on uh, 126th Street further down. I see, okay. And, uh, but you could see the water, just the motion of it and yes, that it was it moving? Was, it was coming up. It started to come through the seawall that was uh, that was built and um, I decided maybe uh, I should heed the uh, evacuation order that uh, the city had put in um, and I decided to leave. We concluded our walk around Breezy Point with a visit to the new flood mark sign that FEMA installed after Sandy. The sign shows a bright red line at nine feet above ground level that reads October 29th, 2012. On this day, Hurricane Sandy brought a storm surge of nine feet to this community as indicated by the red line above. I absolutely love high water marks in communities as it sends a very clear message to residents about how high water has previously reached in historic floods. My own community of Galveston, Texas has a post downtown that has the high water marks from six previous storms. This, this high water mark sign coupled with all the flood adaptations I saw on the ground gave me hope that a future superstorm Sandy will do less damage than the one 10 years ago in this area. So this is, um the main shopping area here and they'll remember this for, for a while. FEMA put this up. Wow. Jim, could you stand next to that sign just for just for scale? I mean sure. look at that high water mark. They said that that's uh, a remembrance for everybody that comes down to Breezy now. Wow. So nine feet of water on this day, Hurricane Sandy brought a storm surge of nine feet to the community as indicated by the red line. I mean, sta with, yeah. with you next to it, I mean, you it's several feet over your head. Yeah, so that's how much uh, was, water was down here. After my adventure with Jim, I met with Barry Lipsky, president of Lipsky Building Construction Incorporated. This family-owned business has been building high-quality construction on Long Island for at least 65 years or three generations. They're a full-service general contracting and construction management firm with a track record of building a wide range of projects, including residential, schools, condominiums, office buildings, commercial real estate, and historic restoration. We met at their office in Bayport, a bayfront community in south-central Long Island, around 50 miles east-northeast of where I met Jim in Breezy Point. Barry is a multidimensional person as he's a general contractor, as well as a first responder, EMT, and a very passionate long-distance runner. He had profound perspectives about the impacts of Superstorm Sandy from many different angles. So this is a Superstorm Sandy story from... Yeah, from the point of view of first responders. Okay, I'm at the fire department. We have a water rescue division in the fire department. 
So at 2 a.m. that evening, which was probably October 30th, 2012, if I recall, we got a call from the fire department. It was a, um, a duty that we had at the south end of Bayport, which is alongside the water. We have the Great South Bay out here, which was greatly affected by the storm. So when we arrived there, we were summoned to a two-story house that was on the water, on the bay. There's a um, quadriplegic elderly man that lived there, and the water was starting to come up to the house. The residents were concerned about getting him up to the second floor because of the storm surge that was just starting at about 2 a.m. So what we were getting was a lot of wind coming from the south direction, and water was starting to increase in elevation on the streets. So when I got out of the fire truck, I was wearing full dive gear and the water in the street was about above my knees when I walked up to the house. So I got into the house. I'm also an EMT, so I treated the patient, got him stabilized. And now two of us were able to get him on a stretcher and bring him to the second floor. Took 40 minutes, let's say, from the time we got there to the time we were able to say, okay, he's stable, now we can leave the house. So as I left the house, and again, I'm still in full dive gear. As I left the house, I looked to the south and I could feel the water coming towards me in the streets and the water now is up to the top of my chest. So within that 45 minute period of time, it basically came up two or three feet. And you can see the storm, the water surging, going in the northern it's moving, direction. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's moving. And it's flooding the streets further and further to the north. So that was um, one of the experiences that I had. So you were able to get this guy up, but it took you maybe a, a little while to get him up. And in that time that you got him up in elevation, the water came up, you said two to three feet. It came up two or three feet. Yeah. You could wow. see it surging from the bay onto the streets. So uh, how many how many like search and rescues were needed? I mean, how many people needed to desperately get up in elevation like that? Were there many? Here, not too many. No, no. You had areas that um, were much further west of us. You mean getting in towards like Queens and- uh, Yeah, their, their um, experiences were considerably different than ours. You could take what I did and multiply it times 10,000. Yeah. You know, that's what they were experiencing. And their population was a lot more dense as well. So, you know, the density of the population and the, uh, the height of the storm was considerably much higher. So we may have gotten five feet of water here on the south end of Bayport, whereas they may have gotten nine or 10 feet for, you know, like a mile into shore, which um, affected tens of thousands of homes. In general, do you think most of the people were really blindsided by Sandy's water level? Like they just didn't anticipate it would be that high? They did not anticipate it. I mean, I left the firehouse, let's say at nine, 10 o'clock that night, the fire, we were on standby and the fire department said, everybody can go home. I remember looking at the chief and said, I'm sure I'll see you later this morning. You kind of knew this is going to get bad. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was just watching the weather reports. I knew this was going to get bad. So, um, you know, so down in Breezy Point, they have these fires, right? Was that because like electricity was on and, and caught or because of natural gas? Or do you know why that? There was... were, I believe they were all electrical fires. They were. Do you, do yeah, you... Because you flooded everything, all the transformers, everything shorted out and caused fires. Do you think like in a in a similar storm in the future, there would be changes like to having maybe like electricity turned off in certain places? Or do you feel like this is pretty much inevitable? Well, we're, 
My real job is I'm a general contractor. Everything I just described to you as a first responder and an EMT is volunteer. Sure. So my real job is I'm a general contractor and we do a lot of um, public works and residential work and commercial work, very varied. So after the storm hit, we were actually in a very good position to do the reconstruction work sure. for the government on residential homes as a mix there. It's like a hybrid type of project. So we were one of the contractors chosen originally by um, the uh, New York City uh, housing and departments that were used to uh, to rapidly fix up the houses, rapid repairs, I think is what they called it. So we actually were assigned to the island of Broad Channel. So Broad Channel is pretty much all underwater. If you were to look at from a helicopter and look down, everything was flooded. So we were assigned to that area. I remember we got there and we had about 200 houses to uh, to do work on emergency work. And by the time we left, we did 450 homes in 90 days. Wow. So we had to rebuild and especially heat electric, you know, the power and get the places cleaned up so that they could be habitable temporarily so residents can move back in again. Uh, destroyed, you know, infrastructure and everything. So it took several years thereafter. What was the biggest challenge with those immediate rebuilds? Heat, electric. That's mainly the, the biggest challenge because people were freezing. And there was because no this was really into November and December, a lot of the recovery, right? Or the, Absolutely. Yeah. The recovery, the, um, the initial storm wasn't too bad, end of not October. But the resources between local, town, county, city, state, and federal government were very limited. So in order to organize such a huge undertaking, it took several months. So the people didn't have places to go. So they were freezing. There were people sleeping in cars. I remember seeing, as I walked down the streets in a town called Lindenhurst on Long Island, there were people with large garbage cans. They were burning things just to stay warm while they're sleeping in their cars. So they're like, they're working on their house, but they don't have any heat in there. They don't really have a choice, right? So they're they're burning things, they're staying in cars, they're doing what they can just to stay warm. Yeah, except they really weren't working. This was too big for them. These, this situation they were in was um, too enormous for any individual to even help themselves. So they might just be completely overwhelmed. Like, they were overwhelmed. I, I don't know, I don't have anywhere to go. I can't really stay in my house because I'm freezing. And they're just trying to survive one day at a time. Pretty much, yeah. Red Cross was there trying to help them day to day. Gasoline wasn't available. So lines were tremendously long. With people so even if you had a generator, you, you, you're waiting for four hours for gas to, to run it. Right? Even if they had a generator, they didn't have gas to run it. You know, they had to wait on these lines that were hours long. You know, food stores were closed, electricity was out. It was a mess. It was a pretty bad devastation. Wow, that's, so, um, man, I'm trying to wrap my head around this and how the progress was made. Like, was it, what were some of the key things to getting progress and getting these homes back? Well, electricity, you know, we all depend upon electric. You know, we don't have um, big stacks of lumber like these to have in the good old days. And sure, with all the burning stove. And all that kind of thing. So without electric, people were freezing. So that was a primary uh, once the utilities were able to get electric, then it was a process which took many years, including today, which is November of 2020-21, where we're still working for the government, raising houses, rebuilding their houses, so that the people can now not only just move into them, but have uh, a lot of the resiliency so that if a storm hits again, 
they could be in a much better position sure. than they were before uh, the storm hit. Well, there's a pretty good example, of the town I mentioned to you, Lindenhurst. We were visiting several of the towns to see what kind of devastation there was several days after the storm. And I remember walking, it was, it was an evening, you know, like about five o'clock when it started to get dark. Walking down the streets of Lindenhurst and the houses were devastated and the people are sleeping in their cars, they're burning stuff in the garbage cans. And we got to the water, all the houses were wrecked except for one. And I can see the silhouette, the dark silhouette of this one house. And we're looking at it wondering, why is that house still intact and not damaged? And as we got closer to it, as my brother and I, we both looked at it and we stared at each other and said, we built that house 10 years ago. Really? So it was, it was built better? House we built, we, we had raised the house back then and built it with um, hurricane sustaining windows and a lot of other measures to uh, protect against a potential storm. And lo and behold, the house was intact. Their boat got destroyed. <laughs> yeah, so it showed the conditions were severe around it, but they were up and they were strong. Absolutely. We were, we were kind of laughing amongst all the devastation there that we actually put something up here that was so, so far superior. There's no better testimony than surviving the storm, you know? And, yeah. Now every house looks like their house today. And so now they're built to that standard. Or more. Right now when we rebuild these houses, uh, I'm going to get someone in here in a few minutes to give you more details. But, you know, we do things like raise all the utilities up. They're not in the basement anymore. You're getting the, the air conditioner, whatever, the electrical, all that stuff up. Right. Yeah, the yeah. basements now are not considered basements. they got to be breakaway walls. So if a flood comes in, it goes through the bottom of the house. It comes out the other side, does a little bit of damage, but not much. Are flood vents required? Oh, yes. Yeah, and this fellow Rob is going to come in and give you more details about okay. that. All the resiliencies. We've worked on about... 650 houses since the storm for storm resistance type of work so um you know it's big and we're only one contractor so there's you know tens of thousands of homes that were worked on did the did the fema base flood elevations change did they did the requirement of how high you need to be changed after the storm well the diff every building apartment is different and the base flood elevation mark um is a distinction of which is used as a benchmark for each town to tell you when you're building a new house or moving or raising a house, you need to be X number of feet above that. And depending upon the town, they'll tell you where they want your house from this point on. Do you see some people saying they want to go even higher than the required? Oh, very many times. Really? Okay. Yeah, so they're saying, I, I don't even want to cut it that close. I want to buffer. I don't yeah. want to ever go through this again. Yep. Yeah. One of my sons lives on a canal that was greatly affected by the uh, storm back then. Um, and we're raising his house right now as we speak. And he's, at, I think, a foot or two above the base flood elevation requirements. Yeah, sometimes um, it just makes sense to go in maybe an extra foot or two, right? And then all of a sudden, you're, you're putting in a buffer for sure, you know? Yeah, because, you know, we don't think things are going to get better. They're probably just going to get worse. So. What do you think, say, someone in South Carolina or South Florida or whatever could, could learn from the Sandy story and what... what you guys are doing here with how you're building now? Or, well, we know. learned from them. The, the difference is the density of population. I mean, the density as you go west of here is just everybody's on top of each other. It's, it's a city. You know, it's the infrastructure is so much more complicated. You know, when they have uh, storms in Texas, Louisiana, 
Florida, you know, the devastation is the same, but the density is so much less. So our issues here are more complicated by the, you know, the complex nature of all these infrastructure issues and the population uh, is so much greater in such a smaller area. You know, I was thinking about that Breezy Point fire today and I thought if this yep. happened in Texas, you know, you have one house per acre, per half acre. Yep. So, I mean, it, so the embers aren't spreading like that. I mean, I was in this neighborhood where literally all the houses are touching. So if, if your neighbor's house is burning, your house is gonna burn, right? So Yeah, Breezy, Breezy Point is just to the Southwest of uh, Broad Channel where we were working. So, you know, we, I saw all of the damage there. Uh, I know a lot of people that live there and they were, you know, in those homes. But yeah, it started off with one house catching on fire and then it's spreading to the other houses because of the wind. And then you had the complication where the fire trucks couldn't get down the streets to put the fire out. It was plenty of water, but it was on the ground. Yeah, it's all it water on the, on the ground. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it got very precarious. And there's a lot, a lot of city firemen that live there. But even with their experience, without the equipment, you can't put the fire out. Do you think anything's changed as far as like different ways to approach a storm like that in the future as far, from a like um, emergency management perspective? Uh, I'm not sure what the New York City Fire Department would be doing different. I'm not privy to that. Yeah. Um, but uh, these know, were really challenging conditions, you know, no matter how well you're prepared for them. Of course. You know, everything is, you know, well, the nature is very difficult to control. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But what, with what, you know, what we're doing from the point of view of construction is very different. So that, you know, we can talk to you about some more. While meeting with Barry at Lipsky Construction's Bayport office, Robert Wolf, project manager at Lipsky's, joined us to discuss some more insights about how they adapt construction projects for coastal flooding. I recorded some of our conversation. Robert, appreciate you taking time. Um, you know, we're just trying to um, understand lessons learned, like how do we build better to prepare for storm surge events, coastal flooding events, things like that. I mean, what have you learned or like, what do you practice here as far as building better to get out ahead of these storms and, you know, reduce the losses once a storm hits. Yeah, so we did a lot of work with the uh, New York Rising Program, the Governor's Office of Storm Recovery. And um, what we did is we we elevated existing homes that were affected throughout the uh, the storms and the flooding. So what they did is they took the homes and they, they brought them up to an elevation that is at or above where the previous floodwaters were. And typically what FEMA requires is that the houses get raised at least two feet higher than where the floodwaters were. Um, some municipalities require it to go four feet higher. So we took the existing houses, picked them up, put new foundations under them, put uh, helical piles down the ground, because typically these, these houses are located along the coast where the soils aren't, aren't very good. So we put helical piles to stabilize the foundations. Um, and bring the houses up to a higher level. Um, once they're at a higher level, we take all the mechanicals and we bring all the mechanicals up to that base flood elevation um, so that if water, flood waters do come through again, they're not affected by um, the waters. Uh, in addition, uh, the foundations that we put in, um, either we do a closed foundation with something called a, a flood vent, which allows the, the waves or the water to actually come into the foundation. Um, the area of the house um, that was you know, it's basically considered crawl space and it allows the water to to, uh, to come out after the storm subsides. Um, we've also done some houses on Fire Island that um, that we built on locust posts, which are basically like telephone poles. Same principle, water just rushes underneath the house, water rushes out and the house is left. So the water can really flow through. Water flows right through. And then the closer that you get to the water and the closer that you get to uh, open water, they require um, 
uh, wave action uh, mitigation. So um, there's a lot of damage that occurs just by the waves pounding against the, the foundations or against the houses. So in a high wave uh, action location, you have to have piles. Uh, you can't have a closed foundation because it's just too much pressure, water pressure on the foundation. Uh, so then they go to a pile uh, type of uh, pile type of setup. Um, they've done these uh, uh, these IO water systems. They're septic systems. They're called uh, um, uh, innovative alternative on-site water treatment systems. Um, they're basically designed uh, to get the septic out of the, the, the low-lying water levels. Um, so what they do is they're a very shallow septic system that um, will allow the, the septic system to work properly independent of, of um, you know, high groundwater. So that's something new that's coming along as well. Um, the municipalities are taking upon themselves to raise the roads, to raise the uh, the, uh, the, the drainage systems, um, you know, put all the utilities up high. So there's a lot of things that, that they've done through the New York Rising program um, and the infrastructure programs that are kind of mitigating this. Are there cases where they would want walls to break away, like if water floods? Yes, we just built the house in Blue Point like that. So it's the same pile type system that I described. They're built on cement piers. But in between the cement piers is a what they call a breakaway wall. So it, it gives the appearance of a closed foundation, but in actuality, it allows the water just to, to, to knock down those breakaway walls and uh, just rush in and out. I see. So the water could again flow without putting a lot of pressure and make a, a building collapse. Correct. Yeah. It's uh, again, it gives the appearance of a closed foundation, which aesthetically is more pleasing than having a house up on piles. Uh, typically in a you know a residential neighborhood, um, houses along the beach you're you're used to seeing uh, houses up on piles, but we're not really used to seeing that all on Um So they've done this breakaway wall design, which seems to accomplish the same thing. Yeah. So what their new building requ uh, code requires uh, very heavy strapping. Um, they they require a uh, a continuous load path from the from the roof, the peak of the roof, all the way down to the foundation and below. So that no area of the house becomes a weak link that could possibly break away. Um, so again, strapping over the top of the roof, they strap the roof rafters to the to the uh, to the walls. They strap the first level to the second level, and then they strap the first level down to the foundation. And then the foundation ultimately is is either uh, three feet below grade or is attached to helical piles. So it's virtually impossible for now the pieces of the house to even blow off. You, know, it, you have this continuous load path that doesn't allow a weak point then. Correct. You, the whole house as a unit would have to blow away, inclusive of its foundation, which is highly unlikely and impossible. Really. Is it, is, how much of that is really post-Sandy and how much of that was kind of the thinking was already there before Sandy? Yeah, I think they've learned the lessons through uh, a lot of the stuff that's gone on in Florida. Florida has you know, a lot of hurricane action um, and they've learned some hard lessons. Um, so we brought that up and now that we're experiencing more of the hurricanes more often, um, those building codes are now part of the you know, state building code. Um, it's become commonplace. But these houses that we've been elevating didn't have those old uh, building codes or straps in place. So now as we do elevate them, we take the siding off them, we take the sheathing off them, and we strap them properly uh, in addition to, to raising them. Thanks, guys, for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. I learned so much from these conversations with our guests in this episode. Jim helped me see that complacency found along the lucky coastlines that sometimes escape destruction from a previous storm happens in many different geographies. 
He shared how people were unprepared for Sandy because Hurricane Irene the year before did not inflict severe impacts on the area. This was a similar perspective of the communities I worked with in South Florida following Hurricane Ian. Walking around Breezy Point with Jim showed me the extent of adaptations implemented to mitigate against future coastal flood events. Residents installed concrete walls and flood vents and sometimes elevated homes above future floodwaters. I was also amazed at the amount of sand captured along the coast near the U.S. Army Corps jetty. That area built out extensively, providing a broad area of sand and dunes, a large area where a playground is now located, and in general, a land growth buffer to protect homeowners from future flooding. Truly, this area is taking flood resiliency seriously and implementing multiple lines of defense. The interview with Barry Lipsky helped me understand what Sandy was like on the ground and gave me insights on how we can build better. His flood rescue story gave me insight on how quickly water can rise. His descriptions of the weeks and months after Sandy helped me understand the hardships people endured in the storm's aftermath without electricity and heat. One of the most profound insights of the interviews at Lipsky Construction was a story about how Barry and a colleague came across a home standing firm in the midst of destruction, then realized that this was a home that they had actually built. He commented that many new homes in the area are now built to that standard. In a sense, the superior building practices implemented by Lipsky were ahead of their time in the pre-Sandy era. Their excellent work proves the point of how we build matters and homes or businesses built higher and stronger will be more resilient to to weather catastrophic storms. These interviews and my tour of the area gave me hope in a more resilient Long Island moving forward. I truly believe they're better prepared for a future superstorm, Sandy, although we all hope that that won't happen for a long, long time. Special thanks on this episode to my dear friend, Linda Lubransky of Long Island, who helped set up these interviews for me. She also provided me with a book on hurricane history in the area the first time we met. As always, I'm appreciative to our production and marketing team for disseminating such great content. They are Seneth Baker, Ashley Anderson, Jeremiah Long, Christopher Cook, and Amy Wilkins. Thanks to you, our faithful listeners, for coming along on these journeys to disaster-prone locations. I really do feel the presence of our listeners as I travel around and trust the content we produce helps feed your travel bug while helping you understand disasters better and giving you practical advice to become more resilient. Until the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast, this is Dr. Hal. Thanks for coming along for the ride.